So this morning, I want to look at uh, Philippians. And what I'm going to do the next two weeks, I'm going to preach out of Philippians chapter 3. There's two things I really want to, want to hit on in, in Philippians chapter 3. And so we're going to take just two weeks to look at it. And one of the things I want to look at is this idea of like, what is, what's the goal of life? I think it's an important question. Because the goal of life will determine a lot of things for you. and What you think your goal of life is. What is it for you? I mean, it's, it's a question that we, we kind of think about, but we don't always think about. And you go, well, well, what is it? I mean, maybe sometimes we're told it's the American dream, right? The goal of life is to have, to have that house, the white picket fence, the 2.5 kids, whatever that means, and, uh, and the dog, and financially secure. Is that the dream? Is that the goal? Because what your goal is will let you know if you're on track towards that goal. Like, and so, so how do you know if you're taking a step back or a step forward? It all depends on the goal. Two and a half years ago, I... Uh, a lot of you guys know this, but I went on a, a, a pilgrimage. And a pilgrimage is really just sort of a metaphor for life. And it was across the, the north coast of Spain called the Camino de Santiago. The idea is that the pilgrimage, is, the pilgrimage ends in Santiago. All the pilgrims are going to Santiago. And I started in France. And so it took about four weeks to get there or so. Take a, take a uh, plus or minus a couple of days. So it took... T- four weeks or so to get there. And when you get there, but before you get there, you just think to yourself, what's it going to be like? We're all going to Santiago. Everybody's going to Santiago. Everybody you meet with is going to Santiago. And really you talk about two things. You talk about the day that you're walking and you talk about what it's going to be like. I spent a lot of hours on the Camino thinking, what's that going to be like? Every day moving closer and closer to Santiago. But then I began to think to myself, so what's my Santiago in life? Like, what am I moving towards? Where where am I going? And I don't just mean like careers or like like my life. Like, what's going on? And where do I go? And and how do I know if I'm on the right track? And I started asking other people too. I said, what's what's your Santiago in your life? Like, what is it? A lot of them, they, they they didn't know. Like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, they think maybe a good career, but as soon as it comes out of the mouth, they go, a good career, that can't be it. <laughs> that can't be it. Maybe to have kids, you go, well, what if when they go on? Or what if you don't have kids? Maybe it's a, I don't know, maybe it's money, but money goes away. It's just this weird thing, and they go, like, I, don't, I don't know. And I go, it's a good question. And I think it's actually one of the questions that Paul answers for us in Philippians. I think Paul answers this question for us in other places, but Philippians is the place we're going to look. And so if you have your Bibles, open with me to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And Paul, he's not wrapping up here, but he's getting to his last point, I think, in Philippians. And so that's why he says, finally. He says, finally rejoice in the Lord. He says, it's it's no trouble to me to tell you the same thing twice. It's not a problem for me, and actually I think it's safer for you. And some people think that what he's saying here is he's repeating, rejoice in the Lord, but that's not what he's repeating. The same thing that he's repeating is this idea, look out for the dogs, 
Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision. Now, this is one of those places in the Bible where maybe you drop in and you go, I don't have, I don't have a clue what's going on here. Why would he go from like dogs to evildoers? Like, we are the circumcision. That just seems like a weird like proclamation, right? Put that on a sign and protest with it. It's like, what are you talking about? And so here, really, what, 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 what most people would say, and I would agree with them, is that Paul is, is confronting what, who are called the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers were requiring people to become Jewish in order to become Christian. It was the big question in the early church. As really Christianity was birthed out of Judaism, there became this question, how Jewish do you have to be in order to be Christian? Now, they had this council, they had this council in Jerusalem. That was the question that they answered. How Jewish do you need to be to be Christian? And the answer was, you don't need to be Jewish in order to be Christian. And the big thing on the docket, one of the big things on the docket, was circumcision. Now, you had Jews and you have Gentiles. Gentiles are just a fancy way to say a non-Jew, right? So when they say Jews and Gentiles, it's a way of saying everybody. And so you have these Gentiles that were coming to faith, coming to faith, these adult males that were coming to faith, these adult guys that were coming to faith, and their question was, do I need to be circumcised? And then the word came back from Jerusalem, you don't have to be circumcised, to which I think the guys were, amen, hallelujah, right? Now, here's what's interesting. Paul is saying, look out for those. Look out for those who are trying to mutilate the flesh. He says, I have to tell you again. Now, this is interesting to me because I think about, I think about this. I go, if there's one thing Paul shouldn't have to tell the guys twice, is that they don't have to be circumcised, right? I mean, that would be like that one thing, like Paul said, like, hey, Paul, you said, nope, nope, Paul, you said it that one time in that one sermon, you alluded to it that we didn't have to do it, and then now we're all good. But he's having to come back to them to tell them again, no, you don't have to do this. Something larger is at play here. This idea about what makes us right before God. That's ultimately the question. What makes us right before God? How can we stand as righteous before a righteous God? Now, I think a lot of times what we want to think is that the answer to that question is that we can do something, right? If I'm just a better person, I talk with people all the time. What, what makes you right before God? Do you think that you're right before God? Rarely will I ever come across somebody that goes, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm totally legit. I'm totally right with God. Most people go, no. No. So how do you get right before God? And a lot of times, like, I gotta just, you know, I gotta, man, I gotta be a better, be a better person. I gotta, uh, I gotta stop lying and stop cheating and, and do better in school and, and stop, you know, yelling at my, my parents and those sorts of things. But how do you become right before God? Is it by something that we do? Now, the circumcision part of the thing was that, yes, it's by something that we get to control that. And truth be told is that as long as we are the ones that are making ourselves righteous before God, then we are the ones who are in control. And when we are in control, then we have the power. I think that's why we like it. But what Paul says, and what we're going to see him is he goes, no, you're not made right by what you do, but you're made right by what has been done. 
and not by what you have done, but what Christ has done for you on the cross. You're not made righteous by anything that you've done. Christianity is not a a works-based religion. Christianity is a grace-based religion that says that you are made right before God, not by your works, but by the works of Christ. And I love it. One of the things I love about Christianity is that it's super honest, especially in this place, to say there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous before a righteous God. And actually, just to be honest, it's a little, just, it's a little bit arrogant to think that we could, right? To go, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I clean up my act before the righteous God, if I clean up my act and do things the right way, then God will look down and go, that's a righteous person. It's actually one of the things that Jesus does with the Pharisees. You know, he, talks, he starts talking about, you've heard it said, you've heard it said. You can read Matthew 6, 7, 5, 6, and 7. You've heard it said this. You've heard the Pharisees, he's talking about adultery, and then he says and about divorce. And Jesus says about adultery, he goes, I'll tell you right now, any man who's lusted after a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. You go, whoa. And what he's saying is that you thought this was the standard of, 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 of sexual purity. He goes, I'm telling you right now, it's way up here. And that's why he says, unless you have the righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, then you're not right before God. And so what Jesus even comes to do, he does, people think he comes to lower the bar. He didn't come to lower the bar. He actually came to say, the bar's way up here. And you go, well, there's no hope. You go, because if you're, if, you're, if you're based on a righteousness and what you've done, then there is no hope. And your righteousness, what makes you right before God, has to be based in something else. And Paul repeats it, and I'm glad that he does. He moves on. And let's move on in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul says, you want to play this game. You want to play this game of what we're going to boast about, what you want to find pride in. Because a lot of the Judaizers, what they were doing is they were finding their, their pride in the fact that they were Jewish. And he goes, you want to find your pride in that? He goes, well, hear me on this. We can play that game and I would win. They want to boast about that. They want that to be the pride of their life. If that's the story, then we could play that game and I would win. And he gives, us, he gives us seven reasons that he could boast. Four of which are privileges, three of which are accomplishments. The privileges were sort of things he was just kind of born into, right? Things like circumcised on the eighth day. He was born into a Jewish family that adhered to Jewish ritual. Of the people of Israel. In other words, his mom was Jewish, his dad was Jewish, grandparents were Jewish, great-grandparents were Jewish. He was, part of the, he was part of Israel. The tribe of Benjamin. Now, it may, you might not know this, but the tribe, this is the beloved tribe of Benjamin. It's in the land of Benjamin that was given to the tribe of Benjamin that we find what? That we find Jerusalem. The love city of God. In where? The tribe of Benjamin. And what do we find in Jerusalem? We find the temple, the great temple. 
And what do we find in the temple? We find the holies of holies in that temple. And what do we find in the holies of holies of that temple? We find the presence of God himself. Dwells where? The land of Benjamin. He goes, I'm a, I was circumcised on the eighth day, people of Israel from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He would have known Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. He goes, they, they want to argue about their Jewishness. He goes, I would win and I would crush them and all of that. I thought about this. I go, there's a lot of things that you were born into that may be the pride of your life, but you had nothing to do with it. Nothing. I think about something like what Paul's talking about here. Racial, like your, your, your racial and ethnic, ethnicity. Sorry, your race and your ethnicity. You had nothing to do with that. It was just your parents. You were born into it. And maybe it's your great pride. And maybe, I'm not saying you shouldn't have pride in that. I think you should have pride in that. But if it's your great pride, your only pride, or the, or the pride of your life, then I think, I think Paul would say, no. No, I think there's, there's other things that you're born into, a social class you had nothing to do with. I was born into a family that valued education. I had nothing to do with that. I just assumed that I was going to college. You know? My parents maybe always thought that, but I, but I had the assumption that I was going to, it was just how it was raised. Your nationality. For the most part, I mean, some of you guys probably have become American citizens in this room, but for the most part, you're born American. And I'm not saying you shouldn't have pride in that. I'm just saying that you didn't, you didn't do anything really to, to achieve that. And that's what Paul is saying. Like a lot of the things that you want to have pride in, you've done nothing really to really have pride in those things. Not that you shouldn't have some pride in those things, but to have ultimate pride. If that becomes your boasting point. And he goes on to his achievements. He goes, as far as the law, I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was, I was, one, of the, I was one of the best. And of the Pharisees, as we know, he was one of the leaders of the Pharisees. He goes, so I, had, I, I, I did that. I ran in that circle. I did those things. He says, as the zeal of the church, he goes, I used to persecute the church. I used to stomp the church out. I was the guy. I was the guy that was trying to stop the movement. And he goes, and as to the law, blameless, righteous, according to the law. Not, we say not like moralistically in the sense of like intrinsically, but outwardly. He goes, I'm blameless. He goes, I kept all the laws. I did everything. I did all of the things that he says, he goes, you see all these laws? I knew them, I read them, I studied them, I kept them. And as to the righteousness of the law, I was blameless. So I've been thinking this week a lot about this idea of what is the pride of my life? What is the pride of your life? Because here you go, Paul's got a lot of reasons to be proud. A lot of great achievements, a lot of things he was born into. What's the pride of your life? Is it your job? I hope not. <laughs> Money? Some mothers say children? Your education? What's the pride of your life? What are you most proud about? What, and, uh, let me ask you another question that maybe will help, help, help answer the, the first question for you. It's this idea, what do you think about when I, when, I say, when I ask you the question, if this goes well, then everything else is fine. 
What is that for you? If my kids are good, then everything else is fine. As long as there's money in the bank account, then everything else is fine. As long as this is fine, everything else will be okay. Those places tend to be the, the pride of your life. What Paul says, he goes, I got lots of reasons to be proud. Lots of reasons to be proud. But he goes on in verse 7. But whatever gain I had counted, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Let me read that again. But whatever I had gained, I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul had it all. And that's what he just told us. I had it all. I had everything. I had the prestige. I had the education. I had the good job. I had the honor. I was living in Jerusalem. I was running in the circles that everybody wants to run in. I had it all. And then I lost it all. And he goes, but then I, I gained Christ. And because I gained Christ, I gained it all. And he goes, and now I can look back on that other stuff and I go, it's just, it's just, just garbage. It's just, as he says here, it's just, it's just rubbish. And we, we hear the word rubbish, right? And we think it's just a fancy English way to say garbage, right? That's what it's, that is what it's called in England, right? Well, that's just rubbish. But actually, the Greek word is a little complicated. It's debated, actually, a little bit. Yes, yes, there are debates over Greek words and what they say and what they mean. They're riveting, I assure you. But this one's interesting because, because we say rubbish. And we go, that's, that's a nice, clean way to say that. But actually, there's a really good chance that what Paul uses here is a vulgarity. And a vulgarity that refers to, to dung. I'll let you fill in the blank. It could also be the kind of garbage that dogs like, scatter through and sniff through and pull out the food, like that kind of stuff. We were just in, in Cuba and we saw lots of garbage on the streets, right, Ralph? And what did we see with, those, with the garbage on the streets? Lots of dogs. Lots of dogs that were, were just kind of uh, ravishing through the garbage to pick out food. And so either way, and by the way, dogs are not clean animals here. They're not the loved pets that we think they are. And what's interesting is that the Judaizers would have called the Gentiles dogs, and now, now Paul has called them dogs. And said, not only are you guys dogs, but the things that I thought was, was good, or the things that I thought was great, is either the stuff that goes into the dog or the stuff that comes out of the dog. But either way, it's not good. He goes, and I count it all as rubbish. Now, you may come across somebody who says something like, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. It's not about the money. Maybe you even think to yourself, it's not about the money. Now, if that person has no money, they, have cre- they, they lose their credibility, right? Because you, you say that because you're broke, right? That's why you say, it's not about the money. You say that because you don't have any money in your bank account. That's why you say it. Because if it is about the money and you got a zero in the bank account, that's a problem for you. 
So you don't have credibility. But then there's somebody like who has a lot of money and they say to themselves, it's not about the money. You think to yourself, you've got no credibility either. It's easy to say that you got, it's not about the money because you have it. It's like when you go to somebody's house and they've got all of the nice material possessions and they go, it's not about the material possessions. He goes, well, it sure looks like it is. I mean, here it looks like it is in this house. So how could you say a statement like it's not about the money and have credibility? Well, I'll tell you how. Is if you had all the money and just gave it all away, let it all go, put it in other places. And someone says, why would you do that? You need to secure your future. And you said, it's not about the money. The money comes in, the money's going to go out. Either it goes out when I die or it goes out while I'm alive, but it goes out and it's not about the money and so I want to see it go. I'll tell you what, that person has credibility. And that's who Paul is. Paul says, I have achieved the status. I have achieved all of the things that you want to achieve. And I'm telling you right now that it's not about the money. I mean, think about Paul's position. He would have had favor. He would have had honor. People looked at him and respected him. He was a leader. He was the one that was trying to stop the church. He had an education. He had everything that we're actually kind of, a lot of times we're moving for. Things like good pay, good honor, respect, a good education. He does all of that. And then he has this encounter with Jesus. He becomes a fanatic for the church. And from the world standpoint, he loses it all. He loses his honor. He loses his position. He loses his job. He loses everything. Oh, and by the way, he's writing this letter from a jail cell. And so I think to myself, as Paul is writing this, Paul, you've got credibility. Why? Because as you're writing this from a, from a, from a probably a danky uh, jail cell, You can actually look back and think back on your life when you're having these big prestigious meals on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem where you had the the position of honor and now you have found yourself here. And from a worldview, from from one look, you go, Paul has lost everything. What's happened to him? It's 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 a tragedy. Most people don't look at his life and go, he's, he's doing well for himself. In fact, actually, it's one of the things that plagues Paul in the early church. Because Paul says, basically, he's got authority from God, and his life is a train wreck. He gets arrested, he's getting beat, he's getting thrown out of places, they're trying to kill him. And people go, if God is on your side, then why are you always on the run? If God is for you, then why are you always arrested and in jail? What's happening? And so here he says, I've lost it all. I've lost it all. I've gained it all. And it was totally worth it. So my question to you was, what's the pride of your life? And then, what would it look like to lose the pride of your life? What would that mean to you? You know, if you said, man, I got this great retirement plan, but then I just gave it all away. I gave it all away so that I would know what it's like to trust God with my future. Now, I'm not necessarily suggesting that, but that's what I'm talking about. 
And what would it take? I got 12 kids, and all 12 kids became doctors and lawyers. But I consider that rubbish. How do you get to that place? Because this is where, this is where Paul is. I thought about the church in Cuba as I was preparing this message. And I thought about this idea that they would, you know, they have the church that meets in their homes and their garages. It's illegal. And if they get caught, there's a chance that they could lose their homes. It's just gone. Government come right in, take it. Doesn't belong to them anymore. They got to move out. Now they're homeless. Aren't you concerned about that? Sure they're concerned. Just pray that God hides them. But there's a greater thing at play and that God's kingdom is moving forward. And then I thought, what, happened to, what, would, that, what would happen if that happened to us in America? If I say, hey, so turns out that if you have people over the church at your house, there's too many of them, that uh, you could lose your home. Which is, by the way, a great American fear. We lose your home. He goes, so you lose your home. So uh, who wants to host a small group? It's like, uh... How about we just meet at Panera? Can we just meet at Panera this week? <laughs> Maybe next week. My house isn't clean. What would it look like for the pride of your life to become rubbish for the sake of the gospel? How does that even happen? He goes on in verse 9. He says, says this, and, and be found in him, not having a righteousness on my own that comes from the law, but, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from God that de- depends on faith. Paul says, I, I had the righteousness from the law. It failed me. I had the righteousness that I achieved. It failed me. And then I lost everything. I got the righteousness of God that God, only God can provide, and I lost everything, but it has been the gain of everything. And Paul says that his righteousness that he attained was garbage, but the righteousness that was attained for him was priceless. This is the idea of Christianity. How are you made right before God? And this is what it tells us. We are made right before God, not by what you have done, but what Christ has done for you on the cross. Now, I'll talk with a non-believer, somebody that's not a Christian. I'll ask him these questions. What makes you right before God? How does one come, become right before God? I think it's an excellent question to ask. How do, we, how do we achieve God's approval? I think it's a great thing to wrestle with. And the idea here, right, is that maybe you talk with somebody that's not a Christian and you go, how do you become right before God? And you know, maybe there, there's not, it can't be by your works because we'd always fall short. And the answer is Jesus and the person goes, yes, I'll receive Jesus for my righteousness. And they become a follower of faith, a follower of Christ. That's good news. It's an evangelistic tool. But my question to you is, who is Paul writing this to? Christians or non-Christians? Christians. And what's he reminding them of? He's reminding them that their righteousness does not come from their own works. But their righteousness comes from God himself. It comes from what Christ has done for them on the cross. And he's having to remind them again. That's why he says, I've got no problem telling you again that your righteousness does not come from your own stuff. Your righteousness comes from God alone. And this is what I find happens. This is what happens to you. This is what happens to me. Is that we come to faith 
right? By grace. Our righteousness is not based on our works. But somewhere over time, we move back to a works-based religion. What makes you right before God's eyes? It's by the grace of God. That's at, at salvation and every day that follows after salvation. I talk with Christians all the time, and this happens to me too. If I would just stop doing this or start doing that, as a Christian, then I'd be right before God. And what I've done is I've just moved back to a, to a works-based religion. What makes you right before God is not your work. You need to know that. Whether you've had major failures, what makes you right before God is not your works. But it's by what Christ has done for you on the cross. It's not your works, but his works. He goes on. And then in verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, become like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And so Paul says, I, I've, I've lost all of this. I've lost all of it. I gained Christ and I had all of it. I gained Christ. That was everything. And he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that I may share in his sufferings and also in his death. This idea that this the idea of knowing here is, by the way, not knowledge, like head knowledge, but like intimate knowledge. Like I know Jesus now. I know him more than I knew him before. It's this idea of intimacy. I know him. He had everything. He got Christ. Then he, and from a world's perspective, he lost everything. But he says, but I've gained everything. He goes, for why? Why can I say that? How can I say that? He goes, because I've gained Christ. I know him better now than I did before. I know him more intimately now than I did before. And I know him now in both his victories, the resurrection, and his losses, the sufferings. I think about that. You really want to know somebody? You walk with them in a victory, but you really, really want to know know somebody? You walk with them in suffering. When you walk with them in suffering, the intimacy goes to a different level, does it not? In fact, probably my most intimate relationships are people I've walked with as they suffered and people who have walked with me as I've suffered. They're more intimate. They're more rich. And they're much more rich than the, the, than the relationships with people who just walk with me or I walk with them when they celebrate, right? Things are great. There's the graduation. There's a big celebration, whatever it may be. And they're around. They're, they, they brought a present. Congratulations. This is great. But you start to suffer and they go, wait, where did everybody go? Where are all my friends? You want to know somebody well. You walk with them not only in the, in the peaks, but you also walk with them in the valleys. And what Paul is saying, he goes, so I may, I may be in a jail cell. I may have lost my freedom. People may have beat me and tried to kill me. But here's the great news, is that I've actually been able to walk with Jesus in his sufferings. And in doing so, I have a more intimate relationship with him. I know him more. And because I know him more, because that's the goal of life, of Paul's life, he goes, then I consider that all of this to be a success. So I think for Paul and for the Christian, this is where I came to the conclusion. What's the goal of life? Like, what's my Santiago? What's your Santiago? I think for the Christian, the answer is 
decently easy, and that's intimacy with Jesus. It's interesting, on one of the days on the Camino, it rained all day long, all day long. From the moment we stepped out of the albergue in Leon to the moment we stepped into an albergue at Tio Pepe's. <laughs> it was awesome. It was like, we got to stay at Tio Pepe's. We got there and everything was, everything was wet. Like all, you know, all the waterproof gear, doesn't matter, all wet, soaked. Took showers, stuffed, uh, stuffed newspapers into our shoes, dried everything out. And then we sat around a table and then we talked about how miserable the day was. Because that's what you do, right? How miserable the day was. This is such a miserable day. It rained all day. Mud is everywhere. And they're like, what about that one hill where basically you had to slide down the hill? That was, that was a disaster. Hated that place. And so that's what we did. We just commiserated. Our misery commiserated around this table. But I thought about one thing afterwards. I thought it was interesting what wasn't said. And what nobody said, not one person said this. Nobody said we should not have walked today. Nobody said we should have stayed in Leon. We should never have set foot out of the albergue in Leon. That's where we made the mistake. Nobody said that. In fact, actually, it would have been insane had somebody did. You'd be like, that's crazy. No, of course we were going to walk today. Why? Because it got us one step closer to Santiago. It got us 25 kilometers closer to Santiago. And even though the day rained all day long and there's mud everywhere, we consider it success. Why? Because we're closer. Paul says the same thing. I may be in a jail cell, and from the world's perspective, I may have lost it all. But I am closer to my goal, which is, is, is the intimacy with Jesus. And so that's why I ask you the question, what's the pride of your life and what does it look like to lose it for you? Because in losing it, then maybe, just maybe, you'll have a deeper intimacy with Jesus. And for you, if your goal is a, you know, the, the, the American dream, you may have to sacrifice intimacy with Jesus. If your goal is just financial security, you might need to sacrifice Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, I considered all of that rubbish for one thing, that I know and have a more intimate relationship with Jesus. This is one of the reasons why I have like one of my, my things against, like, especially American Christianity right now, is that so often we're using Jesus to sell something else. It's like, hey, so if you follow Jesus, you'll have a better marriage. You know, if you follow Jesus, then, you know, you'll be a better parent. If you follow Jesus, you'll be, you know, you'll get that job, you'll get that car, you'll get that house. And I go, I just, I just don't see that. I don't see that in here. What I see in here is that if you follow Jesus, you will get Jesus. If you follow Jesus, you may actually lose all of the other things but you'll get the very thing that you want, which is him. And so my question is, what is the pride of your life and what does it look like to lose it for you? But in doing so, as much as that question may scare you, is you know that, in that, is that what it may give you is greater intimacy for Jesus. This is why I think the question of what's the goal of your life is so important. 
because it will help you know that if you're on track or off track. And Paul says, the goal of my life is to be intimate with Jesus in everything, the imprisonment, the beatings, the times they threw me out, the times they tried to kill me, all of that has moved me closer to my goal and not away from it. And because of that, Paul can call it a success. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Thank you for your power. God, I pray that you would convict us in places with what is the pride of our life. And it could be that we've asked you to help us achieve the pride of our life and we're wondering why you're not doing it. Coming to find out that the reason why is because it's, it's, it's skewed, it's off, it's broken. Jesus, may we not just sing about, may we just not talk about, may we not just not read about having our purpose be a more intimate relationship with you. May that be the truth of our story. There may be some people in this room who have lost or are losing the pride of their life. May they gain you, Jesus. You may be stripping some in this room of the prides of their life. May they gain intimacy with you, Jesus. That five years from now, ten years from now, they'd be able to look back on this time and say the same thing as Paul. It was rubbish. It was garbage. It was nothing. Nothing in comparison to the intimacy that they're experiencing. I pray that be true of me. I pray that be true of us individually and corporately in this room. We love you. We pray for these things in your name. Amen. Thank you.